Our passage this morning comes from Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 through 16. And we'll have Pastor Bill preaching God's word for us. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youth who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. Now at the ten end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline, and we are continuing our study in the book of Daniel today. So it's a book where we are asking the question, how do we as people of faith live among people who don't share our faith? We realized last week that that's never an easy thing to do, that God very intentionally scatters his people among the nations, but that those are the nations that rebel against him. They reject his authority over them. They believe that they can live in his world according to their values and their way of life instead of his. And that mindset, that worldview, creates a situation for God's people in which there's no way to avoid the conflicts and challenges with this world that we live in. And so we're always going to find living here uncomfortable. It's always going to be something, even in the best of societies, that does not fit with the values, does not fit with the lifestyle that God calls us to. That means that there's always going to be tension for us as the people of God as we live here. And that tension is the direct result of the gospel. See, if God were simply fair, if God treated people according to what they deserve, there would be no tension because there would be no people. There's only tension because God offers mercy at the same time that he withholds ju judgment, that he withholds immediate justice. You think about this very strange world then that God has allowed to be in existence with people rejecting his authority. When you reject his authority, it means that you take the gift of life that God gives you and you use it in a way to create a world that God does not want, a world that is not as good as the one that he envisions. See, God has this vision of a world that is filled with perfect peace, filled with perfect joy, perfect harmony, perfect justice and love. And he knows that that world is not only possible, he knows how to create it. But when you reject his vision of this world and you reject his ideas on how to get there, you end up with a world that is somehow just not as good as the one that he had in mind. It's a world that always falls short of his perfect vision, a world that introduces war because it shies away from the peace that he has in mind. It's a world that brings in misery by aiming at something less than the joy that he's filled with. A world that embraces struggle 
because it does not want the harmony that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A world that settles for inequality because it does not value his perfect justice. A world that has to hate because it aims at something less than the love that he is. Rejecting God and his world means that you create one by definition that's worse. And the more that you deviate from what God says, the more ideas that you bring in that run counter to his ideas, the worse the world gets. Rejecting God means that you create a world that he hates, but ironically, it also means that you stick him with the bill for that world. Because you can only create this broken world by continuing to use what he's given you. You, can only, you have to use the life that he's given you, the creativity that he's given you, the energy. You continue taking his air, his food, his shelter, using them against him and against his desires for this world. Now, when you do that, you have to ask the question, how is that fair? How is that fair to him? Try doing that with your employer. Try telling your employer, I'm going to keep taking your paycheck, but I'm no longer going to do what you tell me to do. Instead, now I decide what I should and should not be doing while I'm on the clock, and I want you to keep paying me, keeping me alive, while I move forward with my own agenda. Tell your employer that and think about how long you would be there. Think about how fair it would be for you to stay on there. Your supervisor who had to deal with you on a daily basis would not think that was fair. Your coworkers who are doing their part to make the company successful, they wouldn't think that was fair. The stockholders or the investors, the owners of the company who were footing the bill for a different vision, different goal, they certainly wouldn't think it was fair. And ultimately, it really wouldn't be fair to you. To let you stay on under those conditions would just reinforce your delusions, your false beliefs that you are independent of others, that you run your own life, that you can dictate to others, that you can expect everyone else to get in line with what you want. None of that's healthy for you, and so it would not even be fair to you. What would be fair, what you deserve in that moment, is to be fired, terminated from your employment, removed from the workplace so that you can't keep messing up what the company was doing, so that you can't impact anyone else. That's what's fair. And God is just not fair. He delays giving people what they deserve. He does not immediately remove them from the world that he's making. Instead, he offers mercy. The chance to be reset right with him, to be reset right with the world around them so that they're actually on board with him while he pays for the things that they've messed up for themselves and for the people around them. That's the gospel. It's wonderful. It's an amazing thing that God would do this for people who have rejected him. But it's also that gospel that introduces tension for God's people. God pushes pause on giving the world what it deserves, and the world, at, the same very, at that same moment, does not embrace that mercy. Instead, it takes that pause as license to continue doing what it was doing, rejecting him, insisting that its vision of life is superior, insisting that everyone get on board with its vision. It does not put push pause on its vision. It carries on full speed ahead. And as we saw last week, it insists that God's people get on board with its agenda. So it intentionally sets out to bring them around to its viewpoint, to co-opt them, to indoctrinate them, to entice them to embrace its viewpoint. And God lets them. God lets the world try to co-opt his people and set them against him. 
he lets the larger world do that because he has even bigger plans, bigger plans for his people, larger plans for the world in general. Now, I know that a number of you are not used to thinking like that. You're not used to thinking of the world around you as antagonistic toward God or against his people. You're not used to thinking of the people around you as antagonistic. Instead, you feel relatively comfortable here, relatively at home in this world. You're not used to thinking this way. It feels a little odd. And that's why last week I gave you a bunch of different passages to show that it's not just in this one place in scripture, it's throughout scripture. Let me offer another one today. This is a favorite of mine. It comes out of chapter 12 of the book of Romans. Paul is writing to Christians who were living in Rome. It's another cultured power center of the world in its day. And he tells the Christians who are living there not to run away from their world, not to pack up their bags and leave Rome. Instead, he tells them that they are to interact with Rome, but they have to do so in a certain kind of way. And so he tells them, verse two, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. This is the J.B. Phillips translation of the Bible. It's an older version. It's only by one person, not by a board. But I love the very graphic way that he puts this. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Other versions say the same thing. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't be like the world. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. But let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, that it meets all his demands and moves towards the goal of true maturity. Do you hear the challenge there? God is saying to you, here's what it's like to live in this world. It will try to squeeze you into its mold. It will try to squeeze you into its own values and thought patterns. It will actively try to conform you to its way of thinking and its way of life. Be aware that that's what it's doing and don't let it. Instead, you have to let God remold your mind from within to actively give yourself to adopting his values and his way of thinking. That's the Christian life in a nutshell. Live here resisting the squeezing pressures of this world while giving yourself to what God is doing. That's how you live as a person of faith among people who don't share your faith. And that's what you see Daniel and his friends doing today in chapter one. And in order for you to do what they're doing, you're gonna need three things. You're gonna need conviction, you'll need wisdom, and you'll need supernatural intervention. You're gonna need conviction, wisdom, and supernatural intervention. So first, if you're going to resist the squeezing pressures of this world, you're gonna need conviction. Daniel chapter one, verse eight. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. He resolved not to defile himself. The word translated resolve is actually a Hebrew idiom. It means to set the heart, to place upon the heart. One commentator unpacked that this way. He said, it's, quote, a deliberate act of the will motivated by a deep-seated personal conviction, unquote. It's a deliberate act of the will motivated by a deep-seated personal conviction. What does that mean? It means Daniel thought about this. He looked around at all of the conforming pressure that the Babylon was bearing down on him and on his friends, everything that they were experiencing in verses three to seven that we read last week, how they'd been isolated from their family and friends, 
how they were being actively indoctrinated into the Babylonian worldview, how they were being enticed by all the rewards that Babylon had to offer, and how they'd been given new names, new identities that were in keeping with the new worldview that they were being force-fed. Daniel looked at all of that, all of those things that he had no power to do anything about, and he decided, verse 8, that the most appropriate response that he could have to all of that pressure was to resolve himself, not to defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, why? Why did that resolution make sense? Well, if you look for the answer in the food and wine, you're going to be disappointed because we're not told that there was anything intrinsically defiling about the food and wine. That has not stopped people from trying to find things that were wrong with the food and wine. And so some have suggested that the problem with this food is that in a pagan world, it would have violated the kosher laws that Moses gave to Israel, that it would contain stuff in it that they were not supposed to eat. But that explanation doesn't work because there's nothing in the dietary laws against drinking wine. The wine was fine, and so it doesn't fit into that argument. Some others have suggested that the food and wine would have had pagan religious overtones because it would have been offered to idols, uh, and if you were to eat or drink of it, it would be like you were also worshiping the idols. That doesn't work either because the vegetables would also have been offered to the idols. Still others have suggested this was a way of rejecting the king, that to reject his food and wine was to reject his authority over you. But that doesn't work because Daniel and his friends ended up eating, eating vegetables that belonged to the king. Everything that they had was coming from the king. So if you're looking for something wrong in the food, something defiling about the food itself, you won't find that in this passage. Instead, the key to understanding what's going on here is to realize who it is that's doing the resolving not to defile himself. Look at verse 8 again. It's Daniel. Now, that seems kind of obvious to say, and you think, Bill, why is it important to notice that it's Daniel? Because it's not a guy named Belteshazzar. You have to remember the context. Verse 7, the immediately preceding verse, Daniel was renamed. He was known by the Babylonians to the Babylonians as Belteshazzar. That was his new identity in their eyes. But we're not studying the book of Belteshazzar. We're studying the book of Daniel. Why is that? It's because of what's happening here in verse 8. Daniel refused to allow his Belteshazzar identity to dictate his approach to life. He refused to allow Babylon to define what he believed and how he lived and what it was that was going to influence him. Daniel refused to let himself be squeezed into the Babylonian mold. He's resisting what they're doing to him, and he's determined to keep resisting. And he resolved himself not to give in to their agenda. Now, there's nothing that he can do about being transported to Babylon. There's nothing that he can do about his new assignment of studying the literature and the language of the Babylonians. There's nothing that he can do about them calling him a different name. But he hasn't lost his real name. He hasn't lost his real identity. He knows that first and foremost, he's Daniel, a citizen of heaven. He's one of God's people. He's a person whose real defining country is the kingdom of God. He's only secondarily a citizen of an earthly society, and so he lives in that earthly society in a way that is based on how he lives before the face of God. 
He lives here with the values and the lifestyle of heaven. In other words, he knows who he is because he knows who he belongs to. He knows where his fundamental loyalty lies, and so he retains his identity as Daniel. He acts out of that Daniel identity, even though he's nearly a thousand miles from where he grew up, from where he was first called Daniel. He has taken that identity with him into the heart of Babylon because that identity is attached to his relationship with God. It's not attached to a geography. It's not attached to a nation. It's not attached to an ethnicity. It's not attached to a culture. It's attached to who the Lord is. And so Daniel in Babylon is looking for some way to express his real identity in his current society. He resolves to express it in some way, which means he has to find a way to express it because inner resolutions don't mean anything unless they get lived out. If they're not lived out, then they're what? They're, they're just nice ideas, not life controlling ideas, which means they're not really inner resolutions after all. If an inner resolution does not have any tangible impact on how you live, then the reality is it, it's really not much of a conviction in the first place. Daniel is committed to having his core identity, the identity that guides him as he navigates his new society, he's committed to that core identity being informed by the God who's made heaven and earth. And so he looks for a way to express that identity and he seizes on one of the few things that he can actually do something about. He chooses not to eat what everyone else in the Babylonian training program is eating. He resolves not to defile himself in that way. So he asks for something else to eat. Verses 12 and 16, he asks for vegetables to eat and water to drink. He asks for things that grow and spring naturally from the ground, things that have had minimal human preparation things that more easily remind him that the source of all nourishment does not come from the hands of the king, does not come from his kitchen. The source of all life comes from the Lord. And Daniel wants a reminder that he's dependent on the Lord to provide for him. Now notice what this means for Daniel. In his resolution not to defile himself in this way, he's looking for something that's a daily reminder of who he is, something that makes him regularly aware of his true identity. So every morning, Daniel wakes up in an alien society and eats breakfast. And he remembers, I'm a child of God. Even though I live in this world, what I'm eating reminds me of that. He then goes and studies an alien language all morning, but he takes a break at lunch and he remembers, I'm a child of God who lives in this world and what I'm eating reminds me of that goes back to the books all afternoon. He immerses himself in the literature of a godless worldview, but then he sits down to dinner, a dinner where he remembers, I am a child of God. Even though I live in this world, what I'm eating reminds me of that. Do you see what's happened here? His internal resolution has created a physical activity that reinforces for him, here is who I really am despite what this world tries to force me into. And you need that too. You need some way of resisting the squeezing pressure of this world. Some way that reminds you who you really are. And here's where the passage is going to irritate you, some of you, maybe more than it already does. Because if it spelled out something that was wrong with the food and said, don't eat food or wine that is X, Y, or Z, you would do that. 
but you'd be tempted to do it legalistically, to say to yourself, this is what I must do in order to have a good life, to be successful as a Christian. I must not eat X, Y, or Z food. And you would then do that on autopilot without thinking about it. That's not the kind of resolve that Daniel has, not the kind of conviction that you need. And so the passage doesn't make it easy for you. Instead, the passage is saying to you, beware. This world is trying to squeeze you into its mold and you have to resist. You have to be intentional. You have to be consciously aware. And so now think, think about what you're gonna do. It's gonna be hard. A lot of us are used to doing what we're told. Study this book, memorize this list, take this exam. That's what you need to do in order to be successful. And what Daniel is doing goes against our training, goes against the pressure of this world, which means it's gonna take some effort. Now, how do you do that? Well, first you have to notice the pressure. I'm gonna ask you, do you notice the pressure? Are you aware of it? Do you see it? Do you feel it pressing down on you, trying to conform you? If not, cry out to the Lord to open your eyes. It's there. So ask him to help you see it. Second, resolve not to be defiled by it. Decide inside that you want to live out your identity as a child of God, not out of some identity that someone else has decided for you to have. And then third, decide what it is that will have some tangible physical expression for you, something that on a regular basis will remind you of who you really are, something that will help you resist the pressure, that reminds you of whose you are. That's gonna take some work on your part, I think. It's good work though, so don't shy away from it. And, and here's a place where I thought about giving some examples. I'm reluctant to do that, however, because I don't want those examples to override the kinds of thoughts that you would have as you're sitting in the presence of God, thinking these things through. Let me toss out just one idea, it's very small. Let me toss out just one idea, sort of as a catalyst to start you thinking a little bit more. I can think back to a college student that I knew once. He had grown up in a church. He was only learning to own his faith in a public kind of way since coming to college, only learning to live it out publicly. And so one year he decided to buy himself a small pin. All the fraternity pledges had pins, so he decided he would have a small pin that looked like a pledge pin too, only his was a Star of David with a cross in the middle of it, something very small. About as small as deciding I'm only gonna have vegetables instead of the king's food. Very small, but in a secular institution, it was something that required him to make a conscious decision to put on every day. Led to a couple conversations when other people noticed it ended up being mostly for his own sake. Something physical that reminded him of his true identity as he went about the same studies that everybody else was engaged in around him. But he did those studies as someone who remembered, I am a child of God, even though I live in this world. You need that same kind of resolve and you need those same kind of reminders. That's point one, that's the conviction you need if you're gonna resist the squeezing pressure of this world. Second, and much more quickly, you also need wisdom. Now I've argued that Daniel's resolve was primarily something both inside of Daniel and for Daniel the individual. But as you read this passage, you realize that the majority of it describes how Daniel engages the people around who are over him. 
In other words, the account is about how he engages the larger society based on that inner conviction. It's about how his faith does not remain private. It goes public. And this section in chapter one sets up the paradigm for how he publicly lives out that private faith throughout the rest of his life. It teaches you what to look for as you read the rest of the book of Daniel. And what you're supposed to look for is his wisdom. He doesn't manipulate the people around him, but he interacts with them in such a way that they benefit from how he lives his life. Think about the particular issue here. It's about appearances. The chief of the eunuchs, verse 10, is concerned that if he lets Daniel not eat the king's food, then Daniel will be in worse condition than the young men who are of his own age. That's why they're given all this rich food. It's literally, verse 15, to fatten their flesh, to fatten them up. According to the people who study these things, Babylonian art has depicted wise men as pudgy and well-fed. They had a certain look about them. That's the purpose of the king's food. It is to add a certain amount of mass to them so that they look the part. So if these Israelites don't look like they're gaining weight, like the other young men, and it comes out that the reason for that is because they're now dictating their diet instead of what the king gave them to eat, it's going to be literally worth the chief eunuch's head. Chief eunuch is in a bind. Verse 9, he has compassion for Daniel, but he'd also like to keep his head where it is. And you realize he's expressing the dilemma for people who live inside of a system that rejects God and his ways. They do two things at the same time. They perpetuate that system. They keep it going, but they're also trapped by it. They can't get out of it, even if they want to. Not even if they have compassion for someone that they can see that the system is grinding up. And Daniel gets it. He understands the world, world that he's now living in, and he cares about the impact that his actions have on other people. Here's where his wisdom kicks in. He proposes a trial run, verse 12. He says to the steward who is over them, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. What's he doing there? He's taking the chief eunuch's concern seriously. He's moving on to the chief's ground, and effectively he's saying, if this is important to you, if my appearance, the way that I look, if this is important to you, I will make that important to me as well. Not for my sake, but for yours. And so he proposes a win-win solution. He is taking into consideration what Babylon wants. This country that has stolen him from his own nation, he is concerning himself with what they want. Fattened up pudgy wise men. But he doesn't compromise with Babylon. He doesn't say, okay, let's go halfway and we'll meet in the middle. We'll drink the wine, but we're not touching the food. Okay, you good with that? Instead, Daniel got everything he wanted. No defilement. And at the same exact moment, Babylon got more than it would have had otherwise. Look at verse 15. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they, the Hebrew young men, were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. Some versions try to lightly dance around that. They say things like better nourished. The word there really is fatter. They were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So 
The steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Why? Because nothing else made better sense for Babylon. Don't miss that. Daniel's faith improved the outcome for Babylon. The pagan nation that's trying to squeeze him into its mold is making out on the deal. They're doing better. He's fatter. They're doing better than they would have otherwise. And it ended up costing no one their life. The way that you live in this world should have the same impact. Your resolve not to be defiled, to live according to God's values and desires, that should impact this world. It should make it a better place than before when you weren't there. Where you work should be a better place because you're there. Your classroom should be better off because you're there. Your neighborhood should be better off because you're there. And they should be better places because you can see the traps that people get caught in and you care more about those people than anyone else does. And so you enter into their worlds with wisdom to make their lives better. So points one and two. If you're going to resist the squeezing pressures of this world, you need conviction, this internal resolution not to be defiled, and you need wisdom to live out that conviction in the world, the real world around you. Those are necessary conditions, but on their own, they're not enough. They're not sufficient to resist the pressure of this world. You also need point three, supernatural intervention. Without that intervention, you cannot resist this world because it's not simply a physical battle. It's a spiritual one, and for that, you're going to need spiritual resources. Now, how do you see that in this passage? Well, think about it for a moment. Daniel and his friends rejected the rich food and the wine. They ate vegetables and water, and they ended up better nourished, <coughs> fatter in flesh. How did that happen? They gained weight by eating vegetables and drinking water. You think, wait a minute, that's not right. <laughs> it's supposed to go the other way around. When you want to lose weight, you up your veggie and your water intake. Not when you want to gain weight. They rejected the rich food, and yet they thrived on inferior food. They succeeded in ways that their counterparts did not. So what's going on here? You have to remember the point of the book. See, God did not put the book of Daniel in Scripture in order to talk to you about food. He's not trying to teach you that a vegetarian diet is superior to any other. That's not the point here. The point of the book is to teach you how to live faithfully in a world that is antagonistic to your faith. And so God is helping you understand that he's the source of his people's success when they are living out their faith in an antagonistic world. He's the source of their success, not their diet. He's the source of their vindication, the one who vindicates their resolution not to be defiled. They resolved not to defile themselves, to remember that they are his and that all of life comes from him, and he intervened in their lives to back their play. He vindicated their commitment to him by working in ways that cannot be explained by how this world normally works. It's a supernatural vindication of their faith. And yet it's a very quiet vindication. It's one that can fly under the radar and be easily missed, especially if you're used to living in our modern world. One of the chief ways that our modern world tries to squeeze you into its mold 
is by teaching you a naturalistic worldview, a philosophy that says the universe is entirely self-contained, that nothing comes in from the outside and nothing gets out, that everything that happens within the universe is based on the operation of some impersonal natural law, some law that constrains what can and cannot happen, laws that dictate which effects must be produced by which causes. If you've gone to a public school or a secular institution, that worldview has been taught to you explicitly in every science class that you've ever taken. But it's also taught implicitly in every class that leaves out how God intervenes in this world. Every class that fails to tie events in the larger world to God's involvement teaches a naturalistic worldview. That worldview is taught formally at school. It's taught every single day informally. You see it as you scroll through your newsfeed. You never see an attempt by any reporter to say, here is how God was at work in this event. Here is supernatural intervention. And so consequently, you are trained to have certain expectations of this world. You are trained not to see God involved in your life or in anyone else's. That's part of the way that the world squeezes you into its mold. And so you learn what? Not to look. You're also trained to think that what happens is solely up to human agency. You're taught to believe that change, whether we're talking about personal change, we're talking about societal change, you're taught that all change is up to us. It's up to the individual, it's up to the society. And if this is really a closed universe, one in which God does not have plans of his own that he intervenes to make happen, then it follows logically that it's not only up to us to make things happen, it's 100% possible for us to make them happen because we're just dealing with stuff on a physical, material plane. And that's why it's tempting, because you've had all that training. That's why it's tempting, if you're reading through Daniel chapter 1 quickly, to think, oh, the Hebrew young men were healthier than anyone else. It must have been because of what they were eating. Maybe I should try being a vegetarian too. That's a naturalistic way of reading this passage. A naturalistic interpretation that completely skips over the point that the passage is trying to make that their success is dependent on God, and it's dependent on God alone. A God who is altering the ways that food and calories normally work. The book of Daniel teaches you that a naturalistic worldview is inadequate to explain what actually takes place on this earth. It's inadequate to explain how eating vegetables could make you notably, noticeably larger than those who did not eat vegetables. You need a supernatural worldview to explain that. And the book of Daniel is trying to teach you on every page how to have that worldview. Now, sometimes the book will do that very explicitly. Like when it tells you, verse 9, that the only reason Daniel had favor and compassion with the chief, in the sight of the chief eunuch is because God gave him that favor and compassion. Other times, though, the book is less explicit. And it's less explicit because it's trying to teach you how to read history, how to look for the fingerprints that God leaves in this world so that you can start to discern his actions. It's not always possible to discern God's intentions, but you can learn to see that he's acting, that he's up to something, that he's doing something. You can learn to look for that. You need to learn to look for that. Because if you're going to go up against the powers of this world, 
the constraining, conforming, squeezing powers. It's not enough to have a God who is hands-off. You need one who's involved. One who is supernaturally, intimately involved in the details of your life. One who vindicates you as you resolve to resist the squeezing pressures of this world. Do you have that kind of God? Do you see him at work in your life? Do you talk with your friends about what you see him doing? Do you point him out to your children so that they learn to see him and that they learn to see what he's doing? Or have you bought into the worldview of naturalism? You can tell which one is the case by listening to how you talk, by asking questions like, how much credit do I give God for what goes on in my world? How indoctrinated by this world have I really become? Do you only find God and talk about him when you're discussing the Bible and not when you're talking about what's going on in the larger world that God made, the world that God sustains? God's in both, Bible and the world. You need to learn to see him in both. And that's why you need a community to live out your faith. You can't do this alone. Daniel didn't do it alone. He had three friends. Verse 11, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who he did this with. Now, pay attention to those names. Compare them at some point later back to verse 7, and you'll discover these are their Hebrew names, not their Babylonian ones. Apparently, Daniel is not the only one who had resolved not to defile himself. Instead, he lived out that resolution in a resolute community. You can't resist the squeezing pressure of this world on your own. You need others to do that with. You need people to share your life with so that you can say, hey, here's where I found God. You need to have other people share their lives with you so they tell you, here's where I see God and I see here's what I see him doing. You need to talk both with what you see God up to in this world. And that's why we keep saying, you need to be in a community group. You need to be in one of these pods. You need to be in relationships where you can share this Christian life with each other because you can't live it on your own. Now, as Luke said earlier, if you don't have those kind of relationships, contact us. Go to the website, renewalmainline.org, and contact us. We'll be happy to connect you with someone who is wanting to share their life and have you share their life, your life with them. The pressures of this world are too great to go it alone. You need a community in order to live out your faith. Now, does this passage mean then that God will always get you out of trouble? Is that what chapter one is teaching? Well, clearly not, because later on in the book, like we talked about last week, we learn that God's people can expect persecution in this world. We learn that we can expect to be warred upon, prevailed over, worn out and shattered. There are times when this world will rise up and be overwhelming. It's not fair if I don't say that. It's not fair for you to think, well, if I'm just resolute and, and, and I give my life to the Lord, then life will be easy. That's not true. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you as well. It does mean, though, that when you're crushed, it doesn't mean that God's forgotten you. It means that his vindication is delayed, but it's only delayed it's still absolutely guaranteed. One day you are going to stand before God and he will say to you, you are blameless, guiltless, 
undefiled. He will vindicate you before the entire watching universe. He will say you are righteous and holy. You'll know it. Everyone else will know it too. Say, man, how, how do I know that that's going to be true? Because he's already vindicated Jesus. Jesus, who resolved in his heart not to defile himself with anything that would compromise his relationship with God. Jesus, who held on to that resolution all the way to the cross. Jesus, who died to take away your defilement. The times when you've allowed the world to squeeze you into its mold. Jesus died to take that defilement away, but then he was raised from the dead, vindicated. Something that is counter to the way that things normally happen in this world took place. Jesus rose from the dead. He was raised because in bearing our sins, he himself did not become a sinner. He became sin for us. He became the sin bearer for us. But even in that, he did not sin because in order to do that, he was obeying his father. He is still undefiled. He removed our defilement, took it on himself without permanently defiling himself. Raised by God because God is vindicating his innocence, his righteousness, his blamelessness. And now at this very moment, Jesus is at work to purify you. Ephesians chapter 5, we read that he not only loved the church and gave himself up for her, but that he did so with a purpose, to sanctify her, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's your future, spotless, holy, without blemish, undefiled. That's your future because that's what Jesus is doing in your life right now. He's doing that while you live and work in a world that rejects him. Work with him. Resolve inside to resist what this world is trying to do. Resolve not to defile yourself. And then look around to see how God supernaturally intervenes to vindicate you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Forgive my brothers and sisters. Lord, we have not resisted this world anywhere nearly as much as we have needed to. Lord, forgive us for our sin. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did resist. You resisted with all of your heart, with all of your might, with all of your soul, because you loved the Lord your God more than you loved anything else. Thank you, Jesus, that you have not only paid for our defilement, but that you have given us your blamelessness so that we can live in your eyes before you, holy. Lord, renew our passion, our desire to live that way in this world so that we honor you, so that we bless the people around us that you've put us in relationship with. In Jesus' name, amen.